So what we're going to do here this morning is talk about aids to confession. We've talked a lot this morning, or this year, about how to think rightly about our time alone with the Lord in the morning, how to think rightly about uh, what it looks like to meet with Him and, and to pray, and uh, different aspects of our prayer life. This morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 13 and following, 13 through 17. And we're going to look at some principles that will help us as we have things we need to bring before the Lord in the area of confession. And uh, this is a really, really important part of our relationship with the Lord because every one of us lives a life that is in pursuit of God. But what we've learned and what we want to try and keep in front of us as, as much as we can is that as believers, there is a tension between the mixed condition that we have. On the one hand, we are people who are clearly born again, where the Holy Spirit has entered into a person and regenerated that person and made them new. And that person is able to uh, walk in newness of life. But on the other hand, we're, we're still living in the same flesh that we were born with. And it pulls at us and it appeals to us in lots of ways. And, and uh, in various moments throughout our days and weeks, we uh, respond to that appeal of the flesh. And so we get to our time alone with the Lord and we, we have our eyes closed and we're thinking about what we need to do to communicate with the Lord. And, and we've got this idea in the back of our mind that we, we need to confess. When uh, God's word tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we've got this idea that believers are people who do confess their sin before the Lord. What I want to do this morning is... Um, talk about principles that God gives us in his word that helps us think rightly about what confession is and, and how to order our mind and our thoughts a little bit when we're doing that. I found this to be very helpful for myself, and uh, I'm sharing this because um, I need this as much as anybody else in this room, and so I hope it's an encouragement to you. Let me just read the verses 13 and 14, make some comments about that, and then I'll read verses 15 through 17. Uh, John, again, is writing to a group of people. He's writing to believers. You can see that if uh, if uh, you look throughout the letter. And what John is trying to do is he is trying to help believers understand how they can know that they are truly members of the body of Christ. And uh, what he's doing here is he's, he's going to start by talking about things that he has, has written and told these people. He writes and he says, uh, starting in verse 12, actually, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. Verse 14, I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. What I want us to do there in these three verses is just take a look at all of the statements of fact and truth that are there in this. And you can see the first one in the reality, the truth of the believing life, the Christian life at the end of verse 12. You have been forgiven for his name's sake. There are other truths you see as you keep reading into verse 13. You know him who has been from the beginning. That's very important when you think about confession. You know him. Also, you see in the middle of that verse, the middle of verse 13, you have overcome the evil one. And later at the end of the verse, you know the father. 
You look down to verse 14. I have written to you because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. John is not telling the people that they are strong in and of themselves. He's telling them that what they have is strength within them because the word of God is abiding in them. And they have overcome the evil one. They no longer are people who are ruled and possessed and owned and led by the evil one. Those things are really important to keep in view when you have something that you know your conscience is bringing before you that you need to bring before the Lord is understanding your identity, understanding what God has done for you. It's very helpful to to keep that in perspective. And the, the first one of those that I mentioned in verse 12 is really, really helpful. As you confess your sin before the Lord, it's really important to remember, yes, you have been forgiven. But you keep reading to the end of the verse and you keep in mind the fact that you have been forgiven for his name's sake. Uh, We have been forgiven. We walk in newness of life so that uh, people can see how great Christ is. And that's very helpful to have right in our life as we um, think about repenting from sin and confessing sin before the Lord. I want to read verses 15 through 17. It's helpful to see that John has a progression here. John is not turning a corner and, and starting a completely new line of thought. He's, he's continuing. He's writing a letter. And John didn't write this letter with chapter breaks and verse breaks and everything else. He's writing a letter to people. And he just got done telling these people what is true about them. They've been forgiven. They know the Father. They know the Son. They've overcome the evil one. All of those things are true. And because all of those things are true, he then says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. It's very helpful for us when we have something we need to confess before the Lord and take before the Lord, and it does not matter what it is. Um, It's some exertion of our nature. It's some pursuit of our own self-rule. It's some failure to use self-control. It's some failure to consider others and honor others above ourselves. John is telling us something in verse 15. He says, we are not to love the world. And we're not to love the things in the world. He goes on to say that when a person loves the world, and that is their pursuit, um, the love of the Father is not in this person. So John is describing the unbeliever here. He's describing that the one who, who loves the world and is aligned with the world and runs hard after the world and everything that's in the world uh, does not have the love of the Father in him. And John goes on and he describes what that is in verse 16. He says, uh, for John says, do not love the world on one hand. And he makes a distinction and he says, he brings up the idea of the things that are in the world. And so you've got the system of the world that runs according to man's design. And then you've got the produce of that, what comes out and what is actually growing on the ground, what is actually in, in view. And John tells us what that is in verse 16. All that's in the world, he he identifies three things. Now, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. These things originate in the world. They come out of the world and the world's design and the world's self-rule, the world's nature. 
And so it's very helpful when we have something to confess before the Lord, to agree with the Lord that in that moment, I looked at something that was from the world, boastful pride of life, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the grasping, the self-grasping. And I, I put a premium on that and I chose that and I ran after that. It's very good to, to think back to verses 12, 13, and 14. Lord, this is what is true of me. I have been forgiven for his name's sake. What is true is that I have overcome the evil one. I have written to you because I, I know the Father. I know him personally. But it's good to identify that while it's not true about me that I just run after the world in all of its ways as if I'm a, a slave of the world. In that moment, I, I chose to, to love the things of the world in that moment. I, I chose to pursue the things that the world loves. It's very helpful to keep our perspective on all of those things and to remember uh, where we're going as believers. And, and that's in front of us in verse 17. What's very, very helpful as we, we think about confession before the Lord and, and the first steps of repentance is to remember where the believer is going. Verse 17 tells us that the world is passing away. And everything that's in the world, all the lusts of the world are going to pass away as well. And so it's very helpful when we're before the Lord and we're, we're bringing something before the Lord that we need to confess to agree with God that this is not our home. And we actually really need God's grace to think rightly about that. And so it's good to appeal to the Lord and say, Lord, would you help me to think rightly about all of these things that appeal to me? And whatever the, the list is, your own list. Um, and helping to keep in mind that these things are passing away, but what, what endures forever is the body of Christ and, and its relationship with Christ. So I hope that's very helpful to you. It's been helpful to me to think about how do I actually confess my sin in a way that helps me grow in my repentance, it helps me grow in my appreciation of who I am. I, I feel that sometimes in my life when I, I live in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord, um, what I do is I lose sight of what he has done for me. And I, I need to use that as the foundation for how it is that I respond and, and turn and, and confess and repent. So I hope that's helpful for you men. I hope that's helpful for you when, when you sit down and you have something to bring before the Lord that you know you need to confess to him. Uh, have your Bible open. Be thinking biblically. It's not just a matter of saying the right words that, that identify the sin, but thinking rightly about who you are in Christ and what those things are that you temporarily grasped onto that, um, that you need to confess before the Lord. So thanks for hearing that. Uh, today, Smed is going to be teaching us on what it looks like to serve in the church. I recognize that many of you serve in the church, so that'll be a blessing to listen to him. We'll do that starting at about 8 o'clock. All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you for this morning. What a great privilege it is to gather as men who are a part of your church. Uh, to have been redeemed by the blood of your Son, to have been placed by your Holy Spirit into a body, um, to be leaders uh, in our homes, uh, to be participants in the supernatural work that goes on in the institution that you created for the progress of the gospel to the ends of the earth, uh, your church, which you purchased uh, by blood. What an amazing thing it is to see a room uh, filled with men like these who have been gripped by the gospel, who are eager to put their hearts and their hands uh, towards the things that matter for eternity. We pray that you would use the remainder of our time this morning to forever fuel a love for your church 
and fuel our participation in your church. And we ask it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're looking at a a discipline 3 topic. You think about the, the build disciplines. We think about the importance of being a man who shepherds his own heart. That is, you're taking a look at your inner man, the immaterial you, the real you. The you that will last for eternity. The you that right now is in this mixed condition. Forgiven, justified, but not yet glorified in a battle with sin. And this inner man is so critical. You can't jump over the inner man to get on to bigger and better things. Uh, You must be a steward of your thoughts, your emotions, your affections, uh, your will, your attitudes. And then these things govern what comes out in your speech and your actions. If you're not that kind of man, you have no business pursuing leadership. Uh, Leadership in the church, leadership beyond. And how that affects your home is critical. Discipline two is being a a shepherd over your own home. So that the outflow of what you're doing with your own heart, the inner man, flows into those lives closest to you. It's critical that your wife, your children, your roommates, your parents, uh, whoever it is that you interact with in your close relationship... Feel the effects of what you are doing with the word of God with your own heart. And then that leads to this discipline three. Uh, The overflow of your stewardship of your inner man. You're shepherding your own heart. You're shepherding of your home. You're giving godly spiritual leadership to those closest to you. Ought to overflow into this. God's church. Uh, That's where we'll be focusing this morning. Uh, It's related to the other disciplines that you're working through this year. Hermeneutics, how do you approach the Bible? Uh, How will you understand what God said? Uh, Will you cling to what he means by what he says? And then, of course, all of this ought to fuel our desire to take a look at those character qualifications for leadership in the church. Uh, Deacons, elders, what does it mean to be a godly man? By the way, those, those requirements for the leadership qualifications in official offices in the church are the same requirements that stand for every godly man. Uh, the, The accountability for those for leadership in the church is to a higher degree. However, the the standards and the qualifications apply to every Christian man, even the aspect of teaching. We'll see that in Ephesians four when it means when we look at what it means just to be a part of the church as a Christian man, uh, even teaching, uh, handling God's word well uh, with yourself in your home and as a believer connected to the local church. So uh, all of these things fit together. We're zeroing in this morning on what it means for you to be a man in the church, assuming, of course, that you are doing the kind of heart shepherding that will be a benefit to your participation in the church, right? That's that's the foundation. So turn your attention to Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll be zeroing in this morning on verses 11 to 16. But I want to begin by pointing your eyes to verse 1. And we'll read from verse 1 all the way to verse 16. 
Paul says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, employ you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts, which are the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by every joint of supply, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Very simply this morning, I want us to see in Ephesians 4 the blueprints that Jesus gives for the church, the the design that Jesus gives to the church, so that you, as an individual part of that church, placed by God, gifted by Christ into this body, know how you fit in. When you think about being a construction worker on a high-rise building, uh, you may have your individual part. You may be one who's fastening together massive rivets or doing steel work and welding. You may be installing glass. But it's helpful to know how your individual part fits into the whole. It's helpful to see the design. It's helpful to see the blueprints. This morning, we get to see sort of the massive blueprint for the church. Jesus designed for how the local church operates so that you know how you fit in. And fundamentally, you need to understand Jesus' model of the church is different than perhaps what churchianity is accustomed to. Churchianity, if if we can make a broad brush accusation here, Uh, typically approaches the church as there are people up front, there are people in back rooms who make decisions, who do the work, who do the ministry, who do the stuff, and their job is to deliver the product. And the customers come in, they fill the seats, they receive the product. Maybe there's an exchange, a monetary exchange. And, and you, you pay to get in and see the show, you get your fill, you get entertained, you get a pep talk, a TED talk, you get juice for the week, and you move on. And then the, the assessment is, how well did the people putting on the show do the thing? 
What's the building like? How was the music? What programs are there? What did I get out of it? That's the typical American churchgoer. And the church then is assessed on on how well the operators did bringing the product. That is not Jesus' design for the church. In fact, I would suggest that model is fundamentally opposed to Jesus' design for the church. That kind of a church is terribly crippled because it's missing the fundamental operations of what the local church is, which, men, is you. It's every believer. It's every saint. It's everyone born again, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, gifted by God, placed by God into a local body. And without the operation, the proper operation of each individual part, the church, as Jesus designed, cannot function. This is critical for us to understand. So what I want us to do this morning in thinking about a discipline three serving in the church, letting my uh, shepherding of my inner man, the shepherding of my home flow out into the lives of others in the body of Christ. What does it mean to serve in the church this morning? I just want to motivate you. I want to motivate you by you seeing the big design. I want you to see the blueprints that Jesus has in mind so that you know how you fit in. Uh, This ought to be extremely Practical. This is not theoretical. In fact, this has to do with what you will do this afternoon when you leave this auditorium. It means what will you be doing on a Tuesday morning? Well, how will you conduct yourself at work on a Wednesday afternoon? And then how will you participate in small groups, in NGM teaching, in being here together as a corporate gathering on Sunday mornings? All of that is involved. In fact, it is your Christian life applied to the community in which God has placed you. So let me give you some motivations. These are are pretty simple. They're on your outline there. We're going to look at Jesus' work, Jesus' aim, our maturity, and our work. In other words, there's things that Jesus does, has done, and is doing that motivate our service in the church. Jesus' aim what he's aiming at, what he intends to accomplish, ought to motivate our service in the church. And then a look towards our own maturity. What ought we to be? There's something out there for us. You know, if the, if the, the Dalmatians uh, running around a, a dog track are chasing a, a fake rabbit, <laughs> there's something out there just ahead of us to get after. There, there's something for us to pursue, something to put all our efforts in, to, to chase uh, that automotive. It's not Dalmatians, is it? What is it? Greyhounds, Greyhounds thank you. I, I was thinking cheetahs. That, that is not even a dog. Thank you, Jeff. Listen, the peanut gallery in the front row is helpful. I appreciate that. Um, look, I can hear everything you're saying. So this is good. It's helpful. Uh, not Dalmatians. What did we just say? It is Greyhounds. Thank you. Okay. So we're going to be like greyhounds. We're chasing after something. Um, and, and this something is, is our own individual and then our corporate maturity in Christ. And then lastly, we'll look at getting down to business. What do you do? What is our work? So let's look first at this first motivation designed to encourage our service in the church. Look at verse 11. 
And we're really dropping into the middle of Jesus' work here. The, this, the prelude to this is Jesus' cross work. He descended to the earth and he ascended back to the right hand of God. He came here. He did all that was required to purchase the church with his own blood, to establish it. Um, and then he uh, went away. And interestingly here, uh, Psalm 68 gets employed in this text where uh, he leads captive a host of captives and he gives gifts to men. Uh, Paul sort of rearranges the metaphors here uh, so that, yes, we are held captive by Christ. He's the victor and we're captives in his train. Um, And then we are all of a sudden the gifts that he gives to the institution of the church. It's a really interesting alteration of the metaphor from Psalm 68. And then in verse 11, we see what some of these gifts are. Read it with me. He gave some as apostles. Those are the New Testament apostles. Those who are receiving direct revelation, the officially commissioned and sent ones of Jesus to be a foundation level of leadership for the church. Theirs was a significantly different and unique role, unique to the first century of laying a foundation of doctrine and practice for the church. We have the apostles' doctrine in the New Testament. Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He says, uh, baptize them, making disciples, um, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. What is that all that Jesus commands? It is what he said to the 11 in the upper room, I will bring all truth to you. The Holy Spirit will come. He will lead you into all truth. He'll remind you what I taught. And that becomes the body of the New Testament doctrine that that we have. Um, Jesus gave that as a gift to the church. A way we could summarize that, that little word apostles there is the truth of God's word. Jesus gave as a gift to the church, the apostles, their legacy, the New Testament. That's a gift to the church, part of Jesus' design, foundational level work. Then it says he gave prophets. Prophets were those who received direct revelation from the Lord in the New Testament era. How do we know these are New Testament prophets, not Haggai, Malachi, Ezekiel, Old Testament prophets? Um, Two reasons. Number one, the word order here is important. Christ gave some as apostles and some as prophets. If it were Old Testament prophets, we might have expected the law, the writings, the prophets, and the apostles. One of those kinds of formulas. Uh, Secondly... Uh, This he gave some as apostles occurs after what the prelude we just talked about the cross work of Christ, his descent to the earth and his ascent back to the heavens. And then the other reason we know this is New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets, is back to Ephesians 2.20. There we find out that God's church, the household of God, has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And all the indications there are these are New Testament prophets. Number one, because this is the church, which is new as of Acts 2. And because the chief cornerstone is not just Messiah, an Old Testament term, but Messiah Jesus. The Messiah as revealed in the God-man, the baby born at Bethlehem, the man from Nazareth. So this is clearly uh, foundational work to the church era in these prophets. And what were these prophets in the first generation when you did not have apostolic doctrine codified, bookified? You didn't have the New Testament distributed, not even written. 
What did the church need? If the church was going to operate the way the church operates today, the church needed God's instruction. And so you had this foundational level of leadership called prophets, where God gave direct revelation through men to the individual churches for guidance, instruction, wisdom, and truth. And with the installation of the New Testament, the apostolic doctrine in book form, that foundational level of leadership was no longer needed. That's why Ephesians 2.20 calls it the foundation of the church, the apostles and prophets. If you're building a high-rise building, you build a foundation one time. If, for instance, we are at the 21st floor, if we count floors by hundreds of years, uh, then we're no longer at the foundation level. We are as living stones being built on this building, this edifice that God is building. Uh, the foundation's laid. And that foundation is uh, the apostolic doctrine revealed through the prophets in the first century and then in written form apostolic doctrine in the New Testament. So that's a gift from Jesus for us. Notice what else Jesus gives to the church. Some as evangelists. Some as evangelists. Now, every Christian is to be an ambassador. Every Christian is to do evangelism. But in this list, evangelist seems to be a supernaturally gifted, Holy Spirit-placed individual with a unique ability, a unique desire, a unique gifting, and I would say a unique effectiveness in proclaiming the gospel and seeing people come to faith. Now, all of us in this room who know Christ have experienced the work of an evangelist, meaning a Christian, But this category, um, some would see as foundational, the evangelists who heralded the gospel supernaturally, spiritually gifted in the first century, and that was a foundational thing that has gone away. Or, in our own time, uh, a unique gifting and effectiveness. I'm not exactly sure where I land on that. If, If evangelist is an ongoing, durative gift from Jesus to the church for the expansion of the gospel. I think I might be able to point to a couple of people I've known in my life who would fit that category. All of us ought to be relentless in evangelism, doing the work of evangelism, as Paul told Timothy. But I've, I've known a couple of people that opened their mouth with a very simple, clear gospel and people just get saved. Maybe that's a durative gift. Maybe it was a foundational gift. And because it's in the middle of this list, uh, there's a lot of debate uh, in, in New Testament scholarship about which one it is. But notice what's next. And some, as pastor teachers, you should have a, a hyphen instead of an and there. Uh, these are shepherds that handle the word of God for the benefit of the church. Now, why does Jesus give these gifts Uh, This continues Jesus' work in verse 12 for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. This is where we start to understand why the, the model of church at Grace Bible Church is not big tent revival model. Um. Put on a really compelling show so that unbelievers want to be here so you can preach the gospel so people get saved and do the same thing week after week after week. Tent revival style. Um, That's not what the church is for. Maybe we should set up a tent in the parking lot and invite unbelievers to come and preach the gospel to them. But what happens when they get saved? They are to be built up by Jesus' design. You, You don't throw away the blueprint. 
We, we follow what Jesus says to do. And why did he give apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers? For the equipping of the saints. For the equipping of believers. Uh, fundamentally, the church is not for the salvation of believers. The mission field's out there. Right? One of the reasons we, we have the mission wall on that wall over there is you're in here, you're being equipped, uh, you're hearing the gospel, I hope, every week. But you're getting the whole counsel of the word of God so that you know how to live. So that as a trophy of God's grace and a recipient of the gospel, one who carries that rich treasure in earthen jars, you walk out of this room, you see the, the Bible on the wall. Wow, we have the word of God in our own language. And the, the design is you walk past that missions wall, you see some pictures, you see a map and you see those big glass doors and you say, Oh, there's a whole world out there that doesn't know Christ. Uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, bundles of depravity in my home that don't yet know Christ. I've got neighbors. I've got kids on, on teams that I coach. I, I've got schoolmates. I've got people in cubicles, co-workers, maybe a spouse, maybe parents. And they need to know Christ. And then... Even beyond our, our region here, there are peoples, entire peoples who don't know Christ, who don't have access to Christ, who don't have the word of God in their language. What must we do as a church? Be well equipped to go out those doors. And ministry isn't limited to evangelism. Ministry out those doors also involves in midweek, how do we interact with one another? The task of pastor teachers here dispensing the apostolic doctrine through the word of God is to equip believers to do the work of ministry. The work of ministry is not the job of Scott Demarest or Jake Hantla. Who, who are your ministers? All y'all is the correct Texan answer. That's who does the ministry by design. Jesus blueprint. Uh, you know, the, 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 the old old line is, and, and, and I love this, you know, play basketball at the YMCA. People find out I'm a pastor. I don't want them to find that out, by the way. I want to share the gospel incognito, just as a Christian who sometimes plays basketball. Um, when they find out I'm a pastor, they stop swearing, and maybe they pass me the ball, you know. <laughs> it all falls apart. And then the deal is, oh, you're just telling me about Jesus because that's your gig, Right? It's like your livelihood, it's your income, you're a salesman, I got it. And I don't like that. It's much more effective when you go share the gospel on the basketball court than when I do. And, and so this, this task of equipping saints is just critical to the blueprint, critical to the design. What was that, Jeff? <laughs> I'm, I got gotcha. you. I don't do that in the main service on Sundays. You know, but I can hear you. I know who's sleeping. It's true. <laughs> I know when you're awake. No, it's right. <laughs> Where were we? Uh, Jesus gives gifts to the church for the equipping of the saints. Notice the end of verse 12 to the building up of the body of Christ. Are you in line with the blueprint? Do you see yourself that way? A set apart one, a saint being equipped by Jesus gifting, 
unto Jesus' design for the building up of the body of Christ. This is Jesus' work. This is Jesus' work through the ministers. That's you. And, and what is the task of the elders in this church? To equip you to do the ministry. That's Jesus' design. Notice Jesus' aim. We pick this up in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's a mouthful. Let me summarize it for you. Uh, what is Jesus' aim in all of this? Equipping the saints unto unity, knowledge, and maturity. Unity, knowledge, and maturity. And, and this unity picks up the way the chapter began. We read it earlier. Paul, and, and just catch this. I hope you feel this. I, I hope you're growing in your love for the local church even as we talk. And then you feel the sting of verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner. Guess who doesn't get to go to church? <laughs> ah, that's, that's a hardship. We, we have shut-ins. Right? There, there are prison ministries. Um, sometimes we lose sight of the rich privilege of actually being together. Think about what it means for the Twombly's, the Cans in Papua New Guinea seeking to plant a church. They don't get what we get. You know, empty seats, empty seats, that's Cans, Twombly's. They, they miss out on what we get to benefit from for now. But what is Jesus aiming at in this building up the body of Christ? A unity that Paul leads the chapter with. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance for one another in love. All of those are the ingredients to have unity. And then this urgency, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then theology underneath it. Why? There's one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one God, one baptism. The, the unity of God's design ought to generate a love for unity in the body of Christ. And it takes work. It doesn't come easy. It's not automatic. Right? Automatic unity happens when everybody puts on the same NFL fan wear, shows up in the same stadium, and they're excited about the same stuff. Unity in the church with all of our different backgrounds, that's hard. That's hard work. But it's a, it's a work that is guaranteed to succeed in the end when we get home. And it is a work we are to strive for with all these ingredients just listed while we are here. That's Jesus' aim, our unity. Secondly, Jesus' aim is our knowledge. What are we to know? By the way, this is not informational. This is relational to the knowledge of the Son of God. We are to know Christ. We are to know Jesus and don't you love the way um, Paul prays about this in Ephesians chapter 3? Um, he prays that the Ephesian believers would know the love of Christ. Okay, great. I'm going to know it. I'm going to answer Paul's prayer and I'm going to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Boy, that's a conundrum. You mean my finite brain is supposed to grapple with that which infinitely exceeds its capacity? Yes. Which is why heaven will never be boring. To know Christ, which is the definition of eternal life, you'll, you'll never exhaust. And yet that is Jesus' aim for us in the church here, that we would know Christ, that we would know him. 
And not only would we have unity and knowledge, but also maturity. Look at verse 13. A knowledge of the Son of God unto a mature man. They're calling the church a collective here. Um, well, what is maturity? How do you measure maturity? Well, you, you measure it according to the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Um, what is Christian maturity? Individually and collectively. Look like Jesus. Are we there yet? Nope. We got work to do. We will always have work to do in this life. And that is our aim. Don't shortchange the aim. Keep laboring toward it. That is Jesus' design. That is what will bring God glory in the church and make the church effective. Here's a third motivation. Um, And this is an expansion of that maturity that Jesus is aiming at. What, What does the maturity look like? Look at verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children. That's immaturity. Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Um, we're, to, we're to grow up. The maturity here is to look like stability and discernment. And then continuing the, the sentence in verse 15, truth and growth. Okay, we'll expand those last two in our last point. But let's just think about the stability. What does it mean to be a godly man taking care of his own heart, theologically stabilizing his own home? By the way, you can theologically destabilize your home with the right theological answers married to hypocrisy. That's a radical destabilization of your home, even if you can rattle off really highfalutin smart theological answers. But a a man who is stabilizing stabilizing his own heart with God's truth applied, flowing out into his own home with God's truth applied and taught and modeled, not perfectly, but when you do it wrong, you repent, confess, and grow. And then that flowing into the church. Listen, one of the great benefits of an expository ministry, that is, what are we going to hear at church today? A pep talk? Motivational speech? Nope. The next verse. And the next verse. And the next verse. And the next verse. And the next verse. Until Jesus takes us home. One of the great benefits of that is that all the men in the church gravitate towards what does God's word say? Not the guy up front. Hopefully the guy up front disappears. Hopefully he's unremembered. One of the great compliments to preaching is when somebody gives me credit for what Steve Kovac taught in Equipping Hour. It happened this last week. I just smile and go, great. And it goes the other way around too. It's wonderful when the dispensers of God's truth are unremembered and the truth is remembered. That we invisibly disappear into the, the reality of where the true authority is. Uh, pastors have to wield authority. You teach with authority, preach with authority, but uh, that authority is borrowed. It is derived. It is God's voice you must hear. And if a culture of men in a church hear God's word explained over and over and over again, progressively, systematically, thoroughly, practically, you will know the truth. And you will have a low tolerance for error. Hopefully that will produce in you 
critical thinking and not a critical spirit. Do you know the difference? Critical thinking, run everything through the grid of scripture. Uh, Critical spirit is a a high-minded, proud assessment and judgment of people. Uh, You don't want to do that. Um, when we get to the, the end of this section, we'll recognize the atmosphere of all of this in Jesus' blueprint is the atmosphere of love. Which is why in verse 15, the contrast to uh, being blown around by every wind of doctrine is speaking the truth in love. Those are to be paired together. But let's just think about this. You have an army of men in the church who will not be blown around by fads and trends and every wind of doctrine and every new shiny thing and exciting idea and some new teacher as if there were something new under the sun. The the greatest new books off the presses that all Christians must read. Well, people who have had a steady diet of expository preaching are going to spit that stuff out. You're going to know... Seen this before. Okay, it's popular. What do I do with the popular book? Everybody's reading. My theory on this, let it sit for 20 years. If it's still true and exciting and good 20 years from now, yeah, pick it up and read it. And if you have tasted the word of God taught and applied, where the truth brings about life change, if that's your diet, you lose your appetite for silliness. You lose your appetite for trends and fads and some guy's new idea. You start to just be skeptical. It's new? Uh, probably not true. If it's true, it's not new. So you, you love the Word of God. That's where we're to be built up. If you don't have that, if you as men in the church... Do not know your Bibles. This is why discipline one, we stress over and over again. Get on a reading plan. Have some systematic way that you are putting your heart underneath the faucet of God's word daily. Why is that critical? Well, number one, you'll hold the elders of this church accountable. For decades to come. Start hearing funny things from up front. You who are reading your Bibles will sniff it out. And, and I pray you'll, you'll, you'll come up to the elders of this church and, and you'll wrap them in the knees with your cane going, I thought this church loved the Bible. Keep us there. You'll be able to ask good questions. You'll have discernment. And maybe, just maybe, this church might last another generation in faithfulness. That's rare. It's hard to come by. And even if it doesn't, even if this church falls apart, an army of men who have been well-equipped can serve other churches. That's the goal. We've got to be built up into this kind of maturity. What is our work? It continues the idea of maturity. Look at verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Jesus' design is your maturity. Your work is your maturity. And your maturity individually and the church collectively. We're to speak the truth in love. Don't make those two enemies. Right? If, if you're speaking the truth without love, it's not really the truth. If you think you're loving people with a sappy emotionalism without the truth, it's not love. These two things are married. Let no man separate them. We are to grow up, verse 15, in all aspects, in all things, into him, 
In other words, uh, what does Christian maturity look like? Not a bravado, machismo, worldly man stuff with grunts and long beards and killing things. Although, I like grunting and growing a beard and shooting at stuff too. But that's not the definition of manhood. And it can't be. When you think about discipling younger men into manhood, sure, teach them how to change the oil, change the tire. But teach them how to love sacrificially, selflessly. Think about the men, in fact, some really godly examples in our own church who are physically debilitated and unable to do the worldly man stuff. And, and watch how they love their families and lead their homes with truth. Selfless, sacrificial love. That is Christ-like man stuff in the home and in the church. And we get that right here from this verse. We are to grow up in all aspects into him. And then the reminder, Christ is the head. That is, he's the, the source. Uh, he's the authority. Um, he's the aim. All of those things are bound up with this idea of Jesus being head of the church. And then here's where we get pretty practical here in verse 16 in terms of our work. From whom, and the whom is, is Christ, from verse 15. From Christ, the whole body, being fitted and held together by every joint of supply, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Again, Verse 16 is a mouthful and it deserves a sentence diagram. Let me cheat for you. There's a subject, body, the whole body. And then there's a verb. In the New American Standard, it's causes. Um, in, the, in the Greek, it's just does or accomplishes. Uh, accomplishes what? Accomplishes the growth. Um, what is the point here? What causes church growth? By church growth, I mean Jesus' definition of it. The, the discernment, maturity that we've been talking about here. We're not talking about numbers and size, uh, building a, an earthly empire around an organization. But the kind of growth that Jesus is after, we ought to be after, and we actually have a vital, important part in it. What causes the growth of the body? The body does the growth. The body accomplishes the growth. Of the body. What brings about church growth? The church. And if you were to zoom out big context here and ask, well, what causes church growth? If you were to say Jesus, that'd be right. Farther up the text, we saw Jesus was the, the source of all of these things. Um, the, the, we, verse 7, have a measure of grace given to each one that's different for every person according to the measure of Christ's gift. Jesus is the orchestrator, the designer, and the builder of his church. Uh, back in Ephesians 2.20, we saw he was the cornerstone, the, the, very, the very corner of the foundation of the church. Uh, this is all from him, through him, and to him. And yet we see in verse 16 that the body has a part to play in growing the church too. The church grows the church. So Jesus grows the church, and he does so through means. If you were to say, well, it's the it's the pastor teachers jobs to to grow the church you'd be right in that account too jesus gave the leadership in the church for the equipping of the saints that would be accurate 
But here in verse 16, this narrows down to the role each one of us has in Jesus' plan to grow his church. And notice the way he describes it. The whole body causes the growth of the body. First part of the verse, last part of the verse. What's in between? Uh, a couple of participles and a prepositional phrase um, that, that answer the question, how does the, how does the individual church member grow the church? And to what degree does the individual church member grow the church? Okay, the, the first part is the how. Notice this, being fitted and held together by every joint of supply. And when you and I think about a body, the metaphor for the church, we think about joints. You might think about elbows and knees. That's not the idea of the word here. This is a, uh, this is a biomedical term from the first century. But the idea is the, the ligaments and the tendons uh, and the points of contact between muscles, te- tendons, ligaments, wherever there is one part of a physical part of a body connected to another physical part. That's what Paul has in mind here. And the physiological illustration is interesting. Paul says where where these body parts are together, they create a joining or a location for supply. Supply of what? Supply of vitality and life for the growth of the whole body. That's fascinating. There's a rich theology here in our gathering together. As individual parts of the body, we actually have to be together, joined and fitted together. And and Paul uses first a a biomedical term, joined together, then an architectural one, fitted together like stones, properly cut, precisely cut, and fitted to one another. If we're not together, the body doesn't grow. The body causes growth of the body. How? By being together. Together. Every part being connected together. And those points of contact are the points of vitality where life actually flows. Whose vitality is it? It's Christ's. Whose life energy is it? It's Jesus's. But the life vitality of Christ causes the growth of the body when we who have Christ and know Christ and speak the truth in love about Christ to one another and are growing up into him who is the head, when we get together, life happens. Life and energy and vitality that fuels the growth of the church. So we must be together. Don't neglect the assembly. Why? Because you stunt the growth of the church. And again, we're not talking about numbers. If you're not here, the church isn't as big. No, that's not what he's talking about at all. If you're not here, you're actually robbing other pieces of the body from the things that they're supposed to be connected to. Where the vitality and the life of Christ in the church is supposed to happen. So be together. That's the first part. How does the body cause the growth of the body? By the individual parts being together. The second part of this is the how good, to what degree does the body cause the growth of the body? How well is it functioning? And this gets down to the individual parts. Notice this. According to the proper working of each individual member, each individual part. So now the question is, you, Christian man, how well are you functioning? Are you working properly? Are you on short accounts with God, with sin? Or are you taking in a steady, regular diet of God's word that is shaping the way you think, 
that is keeping you from being squeezed into the mold of this world? Are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Are you a man of prayer? Do you go about life mechanically? Just thinking, hey, do this thing, out comes this product. Or do you live dependently? Everything I'm doing needs to be bathed in prayer. Every next step. Pray throughout the day. Praying all day long. Designated times for prayer. Are you leading your home in praying? Are you teaching people around you how to pray? Those things, intake of the Word of God, time spent with God in prayer, short accounts with sin with God, they will leak out. They shape who you are. They shape what you talk about. They affect how you spend your free time. They, they affect the way you work, the way you recreate. It changes the way you eat your food. Don't think that your spiritual life, the cultivation of the right heart of the inner man, has nothing to do with the mundane aspects of your life. There are no mundane aspects of your life. Everything is spiritual. Everything is designed by God for you to be a walking sacrifice of perpetual worship. So let's just role play this a little bit. Um, Let's just say, for instance, Eric Comparini has been reading his Bible. He's been reading his Bible not just to check off a box, not just to finish the reading plan, but actually to meet with God. He wants to know him. And he's doing that prayerfully. God, will you, will you show me from your word what I need to know? God, will you change me? And he's working through categories of, of sin and, and things that displease God in his own life. And, and he's humbled by them. And he's encouraged by the gospel all over again. And, and he's caring for people in his home. That ministry of his own heart is flowing out into the lives of others. And, and he doesn't need to be known for it or seen doing it. This is just... His invisible worship before the Lord. He's not broadcasting. He's not social media. Prayed 36 minutes today. He just loves the Lord. Taking in God's mind through His Word and pouring out His heart to the Lord. It's His life. What happens when you bump into Eric? You're going to get encouraged. Why? Because that stuff just spills out. What he's been doing with his heart is leaking all over you. And you get a smile on your face. You're like, man, being around Eric makes me want to love Jesus more. Makes me long for heaven. Makes me hate my sin more. Man, that's a good friend. I want to be around him. And your joy, because he's glowing, you know, like Moses had to put on the veil. Put put something on that. You're shining too much. Eric's shining. You meet him. You're like, whoa, I want to love Christ more. Guess what that does for Eric? It amplifies his joy in Christ. Whoa, this guy wants to talk about spiritual things? That resonates with me. And the total is greater than the sum of its parts. Two plus two here in this equation does not equal four. It equals about seven and three quarters. What happens if all the men in the church lived like that? Would the church grow? You bet it would. It's what we must do. That's your part. Okay, flip it around. Smed's not reading his Bible. Everybody breathe the cyber leap. He didn't choose my name. (laughs) Smed's not reading his Bible. He's not confessing sin. Um, He's losing his appetite to hang out with with God's people. 
He's not reveling in the gospel. Um, you know, he's distracted with his hobbies. A lot of TV. Fill in the blank. Just maybe not bad stuff, just worldly stuff. Or maybe some bad stuff too. What happens when you run into him? Are you encouraged spiritually? There's not a glow on the face. No need for a veil there. <laughs> Looks just like the world that I see at work. The effect of that is the Debbie Downer in the Christian life. I mean, it is the stunting of spiritual growth. How does the church grow? The body causes the growth of the church. When the individual parts are together and the individual parts are working properly, you must understand, men, your private time in the Word of God is not about you. It's vertical first. You go to the Word of God to meet with the God of the Word. Not to win an argument, not to get more information, not to puff yourself up with knowledge. But to actually know Him and love Him. And then there's this collective reality. You've been placed by God, by the Holy Spirit, into the church. And the design of God is that you would love Him and it would have an effect on those around you. That's Jesus' blueprint for the growth of the church. So, don't isolate your devotions. The, the, the practical, devotional disciplines of the Christian life are about far more than you. I hope that's an encouragement. That as you grow as an individual and you interact with people in the body of Christ, the church grows in everything it's designed to be by God. And then take that out the front door. The best evangelists are not those who have cultivated a technique, but those who just love God. Christ can't get enough of him and it leaks out all over the place. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this reminder, for this look at the blueprint of your church. You love your church. Cultivate a greater love in us for your church and help us to see our role in it for your glory. In Jesus name. Amen.